This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. And tomorrow marks 13 years since Christchurch was hit by the devastating 6.3 earthquake, which left much of the city's CBD in ruins. And uh, despite major redevelopment work and regeneration, empty lots and makeshift car parks do still dot the urban landscape of that city. A new study by researchers at the University of Auckland is shedding some light on why those vacant lots still remain. Associate Professor Olga Filipova was one of those researchers, and she is on the line now. Olga, kia ora, and thanks for joining us here on Night. Kia ora, Neil. Thanks for having me on the show. I am finding some amusement in this research being conducted by researchers from the University of Auckland. Um, people at Canterbury must be slapping themselves. Why didn't we think of that? <laughs> well, actually, we did. We, we we worked in a team, and someone from Canterbury was also part of it. Nice. Okay, there we go. You got me. You yeah. got me. Yeah. Um, so, talk me through the, you know, the kernel of, of the idea for this. What were you looking for? What were the issues that you were trying to look into? Yeah. Well, I think. Anyone who visits Chrysler City Center and the people who live there would notice the big number of buildings that still kind of sit vacant since the earthquakes. And of course, you mentioned the number of car parks, basically empty lots around the city. So we were wondering why is this happening? Why is it more than 10 years since the earthquakes and still no action is happening on those sites? So we wanted to look into it more and kind of understand what are the reasons for the inaction from the property owners. Um, and so kind of found that there were several factors that contribute to that. Um, one is the limited powers that the council has to deal with property owners. Another one is the delay with the anchor projects, because, you know, having those anchor projects delivered on time kind of signaled confidence to the market and then the property developers would be more confident to go in and redevelop the site. But if there are delays, um, they're just going to delay as well. And also the market conditions overall, they just weren't favorable to redevelop those sites. Construction costs skyrocketed after mm. the earthquakes and a lot of people left into the suburbs and they just felt too comfortable there and didn't want to come back. You, you mentioned anchor projects there. What, what sorts of yeah. things are, are you talking about? Well, it's the big projects that were part of the blueprint, right? Um, such as the stadium and the bus station, um, the residential precinct and so on. And so are those important because they, once those projects are, are completed, they have some kind of um, 
economic payoff over time so they can attract people to places and also the building resource that it takes to to build those massive projects can then be redirected to other places is that the logic behind it well i guess for private developers to put their money into the city center they need to see that the government is also putting their money in the city Mm. They don't want to be just the only ones rebuilding the city center and hoping that people will come. And especially the projects that the anchor projects are the ones who attract the big, um, a lot of public into the city center. And that's what will support the retail centers, the offices in the city. So, yeah, government projects are very important instrumentally, I would say, in the rebuild. And was the government, is it, is it your finding that the government was, what, too slow in, in initiating those projects? It dallied a bit too much and it created a, a bit of a vacuum I, or a competition? I think the government, the central government, with the blueprint, they were overly ambitious with what they thought is going to, who is going to come and invest and help build, rebuild Christchurch right. City Centre. They were hoping for a lot of foreign investors coming in, but unfortunately that didn't happen. So that, I think, caused a lot of delays with the younger project. Right. So the government, with its own deep pockets, was waiting for p- private citizens with deep pockets potentially to come in and help mm-hmm. and help yeah. rebuild when the government could have actually served as the... Um, the, the the person to start the snowball effect, I suppose, as, as it were. It's a clumsy metaphor, but you get where I'm going. Yep. But also there were some opportunities lost with this emergency legislation that was in power during, for the few years after the earthquakes. I guess um, there were a lot of constraints on the what could be developed within the city centre and there were different set of building codes applied to buildings. So Developers just chose to go to suburbs where they wouldn't be constrained with those things um, and just cheap uh, build a lot cheaper than they would in the city centre and make their return. What was the justification at the time for those constraints? Mm, I guess they wanted to, they had a vision for the city centre and they wanted to stick with that blueprint, the plan that they created Right. So it, it was a, a, lack, a lack of flexibility? Potentially, yes. But, I mean, it was a major event that we yeah. haven't experienced since Napier earthquakes in 1931. So, yeah, I think you can't blame the government for everything that's happening in the mm-hmm. city centre because they were also, I'm sure, learning a lot of lessons along the way. Yeah, that's a fair point. And I suppose that's in the background of um, of all of this, isn't it? Yeah. In terms of the owners of vacant sites and, um, yeah. and maybe buildings in, in poor states of repair, what are the, some of the challenges that, that they faced? Mm-hmm. A lot of it was delays with insurance. Um, in fact, some owners are still trying to uh, resolve issues there. But for a lot of it, what we found, the buildings that have been repaired and you know brought up to decent condition, um, it was really the right market condition. And it was really about the feasibility of the project. So it wasn't so much where the council was just shaking their finger at the building owners and just telling them to go and do something. It was really kind of voluntary 
mm-hmm. redevelopment of the site and the owners felt that it was the right time. Right, right. Yeah. What about the Building Act and how the Building Act is, is, is involved with this? Well, what we found in the review of the legislation that councils can use to deal with these um, neglected buildings and vacant sites is that a lot of it is written to deal with ordinary times when we don't have emergencies. Mm-hmm. And so it's difficult for the council to find the right tools to really enforce action. It takes a lot of time and, you know, um, going to court and everything, it takes time. So it's expensive and the councils are under-resourced and they don't have enough money. So it's it's not a way to resolve issues, I guess. We need regulations that work specifically, I guess, for emergency situations. And we need to deal with these sites right at the beginning and not let it go cold because they didn't for example the council didn't really start seriously looking into this neglected building until around 2017 Mm -hmm. which was already six years after the earthquake so you know by then there was no the sarah act already wasn't in christchurch Um, so they all the power went to council and the central government couldn't really do anything in the city there was, I recall, you know, a decent amount of emergency legislation that was passed after the earthquake. But is that sort of, um, again, a clumsy metaphor, but, you know, b- building the plane while you're flying it, you know? Yes. But I guess, yeah, that was something that they missed. And I guess they thought that things would happen with this neglected building and they didn't really use any emergency powers to really force action early on. And so once that emergency legislation lapsed, now the council is left just with the normal whatever other legislation they can use outside of emergency. Are there examples of countries around the world that do have emergency legislation for such situations? I would think, I guess Mm. this is because... um, uh, that, that, that part of the world gets a lot of earthquakes and tsunami, but but maybe Japan yeah. would have emergency legislation for situations like this? Mm, I guess, well, I'm not an expert in... I, I understand, that's what, yeah. That's the, the other co-authors who were part of this project. They yeah. have more expertise in that, but in conversations with them, yes, there are countries, international examples, where there is a better set of regulations to deal with emergency in in situations where, like, big earthquakes or floods. In Australia, for example, yeah, they do have that. Mm. It, with the benefit of hindsight, um, which is always twenty twenty, um, yeah. what could have been done? immediately after the earthquakes to encourage investment and building in the CBD in particular? Well, potentially to for the central government, I guess, to encourage development in the city centre by not allowing development in the suburbs. You know, so potentially maybe changing the district plan for, um, I guess, making it harder to develop in suburbs yet making it easier to develop in the city center. But it was the exact opposite what happened. Mm-hmm. It was easy to develop in suburbs, 
and very difficult in the city center. They must Plus be the cordon. There, there would be a um, a balance to strike there too, though, right? Like you don't want the suburbs to to be neglected and to fall into ruin. Yeah, of course you don't want to, but. Yes, like you said, it needs to be a balanced approach, but it seemed that for developers it was a lot easier just to go into the suburbs. Mm. Yeah, but now we probably it's another five, seven years until we see a lot more activity in the Chrysler city center. Yeah, it is still pretty noticeable, isn't it? Yeah. My, um, my mother lives in Chrysler, so I get down there a bit and yeah, certain parts of the city in particular, very noticeable. Olga, um, in summary, I mean, New Zealand is vulnerable to all sorts of different types of natural disaster, yep. some predictable, some not. Um, are there lessons that other cities can learn from Christchurch's experience in terms of preparing for and managing the aftermath of, of natural disasters? Well, I think it's where most of the damage, of course, is happening from the buildings. And the way we build our buildings, we do... They perform well to save lives, but we're not doing so well on actually reducing the damage where we can just go back to the building and repair it and not having to demolish it where we sit now with vacant sites or buildings that you can't reoccupy. So it's really, I guess, uh, changes to the code where buildings are not only saving lives, but are also being functional within um certain time frames. So buildings are being able to be reoccupied in a time frame that's acceptable for people. It's very interesting stuff. Olga Filipova, thank you so much for your time this evening. Thank you, Emil, and you have a good night. You as well. That is Olga Filipova, who is an associate professor at the University of Auckland. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.